I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes as you were coming in the vestibule. We continue our study of the book of Hebrews, and today we conclude, hopefully, the message I began last Sunday entitled, The Discipline Required to Run the Race. Our focal passage being Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. One of the most important observations to make about this portion of Hebrews is the focus on the suffering of believers that is caused by persecution. When you go to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it highlights Old Testament saints who for their faith in God were tortured, mocked, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, cut in half, beheaded, destitute, and homeless. Moving into Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew believers are are exhorted to run their Christian race with endurance, uh, finding encouragement from the example of the Old Testament saints. They were told to look to Jesus who endured great shame and suffered a horrible death but kept his eyes fixed on the finish line knowing that death would usher him into the joy of being exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. Then in verse 3, the Hebrew believers are exhorted, For consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. It is very obvious what was threatening to cause the Hebrew believers to grow weary and lose heart. Like Jesus, they were suffering hostility from sinners. We know from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, that the Hebrew believers suffered, quote, a great conflict of sufferings. And we're told that those sufferings included being exposed to public ridicule, being beaten for their faith in Christ, and even being in prison. But at this point, there were no martyrs in the Christian community. None had been put to death for their faith. But we do know historically that the persecution they were facing at this time eventually did escalate to where many Christians were put to death. Their stress level really was off the charts. I mean, how do you sleep at night knowing that in any moment your home may be raided? You, your wife, and your children dragged out, beaten, imprisoned, and possibly even worse. Hebrews 12.11 gives us a hint of what they were feeling. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but what? Sorrowful. In other words, their present experience was filled with sorrow. Their Christian joy had been overshadowed by the dark cloud of persecution. The use of the word seems in verse 11 
All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. That does seem to indicate that they were still trying to cling to the joy of their Christian hope. But the tears and the pain was so great that sorrow had gained the upper hand, at least for a season. They were in grave danger of growing weary, of losing heart, of quitting the Christian race to escape the stress and suffering. The entire book of Hebrews was written to prevent that very thing from happening. And especially here in Hebrews chapter 12. Now look at the introduction in your notes which summarizes the primary truth that's communicated in Hebrews 12. Because to be very honest with you, often this teaching is taken out of its context. And the focus is typically put on discipline as correction. Now that is here in the passage, but there's much more in this passage than just disciplinary correction. And we saw that last week and we'll continue to see that this week. Look at the introduction. The Hebrew Christians... As we already noted, we're encountering persecution for their faith. And we're in danger of compromise and retreat to escape suffering. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, they're exhorted to run the Christian race with endurance by keeping their eyes, what, fixed on Jesus and remaining faithful to Him until they cross the finish line. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11, emphasizes... How God uses suffering inflicted on Christians by those hostile towards God as disciplinary training to produce spiritual maturity. We should find great comfort in the fact that God's enemies can never frustrate God's purpose and God's love for His children. Last week we saw that the key word in Hebrews 12 verses 4 through 11 is the word discipline. It's used nine different times. In the Greek text, the word is padeia. And the word means much more than correction. It refers to whatever a parent would do. To educate, to train, and yes, to correct his child. The purpose being to bring that child to full maturity as a responsible adult. Now the point for the Hebrew believers was this, that God was using the hostility against them as a means of spiritual training to bring them to greater heights of spiritual maturity. Hebrews 12, seen in that light, is one of the greatest statements in the Bible concerning God's sovereignty over the evil and suffering that befalls his people. We see how God uses the evil, how God uses suffering to train us in Christ-like character, to teach us eternal values, to receive eternal rewards. And the great question as we walk through this chapter is simply, will you believe this? Will you believe the truth when you're suffering from evil? When you're in the pain of adversity? Will you believe in a sovereign God? 
Will you accept the pain in your life as God's spiritual training or will you resist God's training only to grow weary and lose heart in running the race that God has set out for you? You see in your notes seven questions about God's disciplinary training which are all answered in Hebrews 12. Now, last Sunday, we looked at the first two questions. So let's briefly review and then look at the remaining questions. Number one, why do I need God's discipline? Well, first, to become spiritually fit. That's why I not need God's disciplinary training. And keep in mind now, when we say the word discipline, we're meaning more than correction. We're meaning education, we're meaning training, we're meaning instruction as well as correction. So we need God's discipline to become spiritually fit so that we can run the race, not only run the race, but win the race. Look at Hebrews 12.4, which is a gentle rebuke of the Hebrew Christian's soft faith which was about to cave in the midst of the suffering that they were experiencing. He says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. See, the writer is bringing to their attention that although they had suffered persecution, they had not resisted to the point of death like Jesus did. And some of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 The writer, in essence, is saying, this is not a time to lose heart. This is not a time to quit the race. Look to Jesus. Look to the other heroes of faith who remain faithful to God in the midst of horrific suffering, even to the point of death. Be like them. Run the race with endurance and remain faithful all the way across the finish line, no matter what you may face. As I mentioned last Sunday, this is a very relevant message for the church in America today. Hostility towards Christians is increasing, and it's only going to continue to increase. Will we give in to fear and despair, or will we keep running after Jesus no matter the cost? See, God's objective in our lives is not to produce fair-weather fans for Christ, but to produce champions for Christ. Thus the need for God's disciplinary training. God wants to take our weak, flabby faith and develop it into a level of spiritual fitness where we can run the race. And not only run the race, but run it well. And not only run it well, but finish well. Going across that finish line, an overcomer by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just like a coach, an athletic coach, pushing an athlete to excellence, God is going to push you way beyond what you think you can ever endure or achieve. He will lay on you the heavy weight of burdens to build your spiritual muscles. He will allow your faith to be attacked in order to strengthen your faith. He will allow you to come to the end of your endurance to push you to greater endurance. Yes, the training is painful, but the results will be worth it all. When you cross the finish line, 
to be embraced by Jesus and to hear the words, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, enter now, what? The eternal joy of your Lord. Let's be honest, left to ourselves, we would become nothing more than couch potato Christians. We desperately need God's disciplinary training to become spiritually fit to run and win the race. There's a second reason we need God's discipline that you see there in your notes, which is closely related to the first, and that is to learn to follow the coach's instructions. We have to learn to follow the coach's instructions. And this was a problem that the Hebrew believers were having. Look at verse 5. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. See, as we run the Christian race, God is our coach. And as our coach, He is committed to train us and to lead us to victory. And His training instructions are written right here in the Bible. Therefore, how can any believer How can any believer expect to run and win the race if he does not know and practice the coach's instructions? You know, we took a lot of time last week to demonstrate that at the very root of the Hebrew believer's faith crisis was not the external persecution, but it was the fact that they had neglected God's Word. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, is simply trusting obedience. As I trust and obey, as I practice the coach's instructions, I grow stronger and stronger to run the race. But if I neglect the coach's instructions, if I neglect his training, I'm only going to grow weaker and weaker until I collapse in despair in the middle of the track. And that's what happens to so many believers because of their neglect of God's Word, because of not feeding on God's Word. They grow weak and they falter in despair and discouragement. Now, going back to verse 5, it says the Hebrew believers had forgotten the exhortation addressed to them as sons. What was the specific exhortation they had forgotten? Well, the answer is found in answering the second question in your sermon notes. What is the motive behind God's discipline? What is the motive behind God's discipline? Love. Behind all of God's disciplinary training is His love. And the Hebrew believers had forgotten that. They had forgotten God's unfailing love for His child. They had made the mistake because life had gotten rough, because it had gotten hard and painful, that God's disposition must have changed toward them. Now He must be angry with them, or this wouldn't be happening. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. My son... My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord, what? Loves. He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. So whether it's disciplinary training, whether it's correction, it's out of His love. Look at Psalm 89, verses 32 and 33. If they violate my statutes 
and do not keep my commandments, he's referring to his people, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness. Beloved, when Jesus Christ died on the cross to take the punishment you deserved and to pay for the penalty of your sin, he became the object of his Father's wrath so that you could become the object of his Father's love. If you placed your faith in God, if you are God's child, there is absolutely nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing anyone else can do. There's nothing any adversity can do that can stop God from loving you. Matter of fact, matter of fact, to put it on very simple terms, because God does love you, there's only one of three reasons why anything happens in your life. Only one of three reasons. First one is, God's using the trial, He's using the test, the adversity, whatever it might be, to bring you back to Him. Because He loves you. Good example, as we looked at this last week, was what? David. Who transgressed. Who drifted off the race course. And got in the mire of sin through adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah murdered. So God brought discipline. And he brought discipline because he loved David. He wanted to bring back David to himself. To bring them back to where they would know that sweet fellowship once again. Where there would know intimacy once again. And where David again would become a mighty instrument in God's hand to accomplish God's purposes. Second, only the second reason God's going to bring anything in your life is to keep you close to Him. And we talked about this last week with the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Remember, it said God gave him that thorn in the flesh not because Paul was guilty of pride, but to keep him from pride. He was given the thorn in, of the, in the flesh so that he would clearly see his total and utter dependence upon God. So that it would create in his heart a desperation for God and a determination to get to God, knowing that in God is his only hope in this life. So, no matter what happens in your life, it's either to bring you back to him, or like you did with Paul, to keep you close to him, to show your dependence upon him, need for him, or to bring you even closer to him is the third reason, to bring you, like Job. Job was a righteous man. He feared God. Job knew God's disciplinary training, not because he was doing anything wrong, but because he was doing everything right. God wanted to take him to greater heights of excellence. And so you come to the end of the book, and what does Job say? He said, before the suffering, before the disciplinary training, I knew a lot about you by the hearing of the ear. I had a lot of head knowledge, but now my eyes have seen you. There's an intimacy with you that I never knew before the suffering, before the disciplinary training. And folks, it is really that simple. If you're a child of God, I don't care what you're going through right now. It's for one of, the, of those three reasons. God is either trying to bring you back to him because you've strayed from him, 
or he's trying to keep you close to him, showing your dependence upon him, or he's trying to bring you even closer to him like he did with his servant Job. Look at the next statement in your notes. Knowing God's love, knowing God loves me, keeps me from the two opposite pitfalls in relating to God's discipline. Disdain, where it says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, and dismay, nor faint when reproved by Him. See, if I don't realize that God loves me when the pain comes, when I'm put in the disciplinary training, then I'm either going to resist it because I'm angry with God, you're not fair, or I'm going to get dis- fall apart in discouragement. God doesn't love me anymore. And I'll begin to whine and complain and murmur. And just cave in to selfishness and self-centeredness. But if I know God's love, it keeps me from those two pitfalls. Look at the third question. What is the relationship behind God's discipline? Father-child. Father-child. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. The uh, New International Version probably translates that first uh, phrase a little better. It says, Endure hardship as discipline, because God is treating you as sons. Then it goes on, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, all of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, the point is too obvious to miss. A father disciplines only his own sons, which is the proof that they are his children. When the book of Hebrews was written, permissive parenting was literally unthinkable, and especially in the Hebrew community. The primary responsibility to train and discipline a child was the father's. You knew who your father was because he was involved in your training, and he was the one that would administer correction when it was needed. He was the one tender enough to encourage you, but also tough enough to give you what you needed instead of what you wanted. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spares the rod, what? Hates his son. But he who loves him, notice, is careful to discipline him. How much more is our Heavenly Father's discipline a proof of his love and a proof of our sonship? Look at the next statement in your notes. God's discipline is the highest compliment He can give me because it assures me I am His legitimate child. That's how you need to look at discipline, at adversity, at trial, at correction. God's discipline is the highest compliment He can give me because it assures me I am His legitimate child. And think a moment about the alternative. Hebrews 12.8 says, If you are without discipline... You are what? Illegitimate children and not sons. If there's no blood discipline, there's no sonship. So be thankful that the adversity, the pain, the trial is an evidence that God is involved in your life. He is attempting to train you, to build you up, and to mature you. The fourth question, what should be my attitude when God disciplines me? Submission. Submission. Hebrews 12, 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Folks, my time is going so quickly. Simply put, it is absolutely foolish not to submit to God's discipline. 
And the reason is in the next statement in your notes. God, my daddy, is perfect. He's infallible. He's consistent. He's fair. He always uses the appropriate discipline to fit the offense or the education, the training that I need. He only desires to protect from the consequences of sin and provide abundant life. So why would I not submit to his disciplinary training? Because he loves me and he only wants to protect me. He only wants to provide me abundant life. He only wants to provide me the joy that can be found in Jesus. Look at the fifth question. What is the purpose behind God's discipline? My good. My good. He's thinking about me. Hebrews 12.10, For they disciplined us, talking about our earthly fathers for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our what? Good, don't miss this, so that we may share His holiness. See, our earthly fathers, they did the best they could. But we make lots of mistakes. I mean, I've, I've disciplined the wrong child at different times. Sometimes we blow up in anger. We, we, we go to extremes. Uh, we're not fair. We're not consistent. But God is none of those things. Again, He's perfect. And when He disciplines, it's only for my good that I might share His holiness. Look at Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, David said, I would astray. But now I keep thy word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. See, it's important to realize the next truth stated in your notes. God is not a benevolent grandfather in heaven whose primary interest is my contentment, but a father whose primary interest is my character. That is what God is after. He's after developing Christ-like character, forming Christ in me to be displayed through me that others might be drawn to Him. Look at the sixth question. What is the means of God's discipline? Pain. <laughs> what is the means of God's discipline? Pain. Hebrews 12, 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but what? Sorrowful. Folks, it is not pleasant going through disciplinary training. As I shared last week, as an athlete, man, I'll, I'll never forget those practices. They were horrendous. I hated every moment of them. It was painful. But it was preparing me to play the game. As we mentioned, these soldiers, the training they go through, the horrific pain. I mean, it, 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 it's horrific what, what some of those DIs will put these guys through. And others, but they're preparing them to fight. They're preparing them for the rigors of the battlefield. It's for their good again, but that's not going to come about without the test of pain. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 4 17, I love this, listen, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Isn't that great? See, if you're a believer, never forget this. All pain is temporary. 
All pain is temporary. But the character the pain produces as you submit to God to learn his lessons, that lasts forever. That lasts forever. And one of the primary ways that God uses pain is seen in the next statement in your notes. I am to accept God's discipline as a reminder that the pain of sin far outweighs the pleasure of sin. Amen? The pain of sin far outweighs the pleasure of sin. And then the seventh question, what benefits are derived from God's discipline? Peace and righteousness. Those are the benefits, peace and righteousness. It says, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, afterwards, as you go through the process, it yields something, it produces something, and it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And the Hebrew concept of peace means not only quietness of soul, but wholeness. It has been defined by one Bible teacher as the bringing together of what was separated. The picking up of the pieces, the healing of wounds, the fulfillment of the incomplete, the overcoming of the forces of fragmentation. Oh, blessed peace. The fruit of righteousness is simply the character of Christ being formed in you to be lived out through you. And the last statement in your notes brings all of this to full circle, right where we began. God, like a wise coach, trains us to run the race with endurance by bringing greater and greater stress and challenge to our lives in order for us to achieve levels of spiritual fitness that we could never have imagined possible. Amen? Amen. And so what do I say? I say, let the rains of disappointment come if they water the plants of spiritual grace. Let the winds of adversity blow if they serve to root more securely the trees God has planted. I say, let the sun of prosperity be eclipsed if it brings me closer to the true light of life. Welcome, sweet discipline. Discipline designed for my joy. Discipline designed to make me what God wants me to be. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what a wonderful message to go into the Lord's Supper with. And what I would recommend as we observe the Lord's Supper today is for you there right in your pew, get alone with God. And you acknowledge, God... I need your spiritual discipline because I need to become spiritually fit. And Lord, thank you that nothing can touch my life that doesn't come from your love for my good. And Lord, forgive me for resisting, but now I'm going to submit. And so Lord, use this in my life, whether it's to bring me back to you, whether it's to keep me close to you, or to even bring me closer to you, Father, do your work. Work your peace. Work your righteousness in me. Of course, we're told on the day in which, or the night in which Jesus was betrayed, that he took the bread, and we're told that after he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body given for you. 
my body that was offered as a sacrifice for the penalty of your sins to give you eternal life. And then after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my new covenant that I'm entering with you. It's, this was literally Christ's last will and testament. And he said, I'm making you some guarantees if you place your faith in me. And here they are. I'm going to pardon your sin. I'll remember them no more. And I will love you with an unfailing love. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new heart that hungers and thirsts for me. And then I'm going to take up residence in your life. Your body will become my temple. Your heart will become my home. Father, thank you. Thank you as we come to the Lord's Supper to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And Father, we see in His life how You took the hostility of sinners to accomplish Your purposes and bring eternal life to us. And thank You, we find the encouragement that no matter what hostility may come our way, You're a sovereign God. That no hostility, no suffering, no adversity, nothing can touch our lives that does not come first through your hands of love. And let us never forget that the hands that shape our circumstances are the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. And give us the grace to submit to you and to honor you through that submission as you accomplish your purposes in us. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.